Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year to you all. Welcome to the 50th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and for my 50th episode, I, of course, had to have a very special guest co-host this week. This podcast literally would not be possible without her because I would, like, actually not be alive. Um, My guest co-host this week is my mom. Hello, mom. How are you? Hi, Liam. I'm great, and I'm so excited to be on with you. I'm so excited that you're here and y'all are in for a special treat because my mom is like really the person who like really truly inspired my interest in true crime and my love for wine too. Um, You know, growing up that was like the thing and you know the ID channel was always on and so that was really kind of what got him, got me into it but like our, honestly mom give me like a little bit of a run for my money in terms of like the true crime lover um, for yeah. sure Um, and she has been a huge supporter of the podcast as well so I thank you so much for that mom um and so i had to have you on of course in honor for of my major milestone episode this week so thanks so much for doing this well you're so welcome i only had to wait for 49 episodes to <laughs> well, my I ha- invite. well i had to get i had to get a, a really good you know number on for you right like who wants to be like episode 36 like obviously it had to be That's episode true. 50 so here we are so true. um <laughs> let's uh celebrate that um with with a glass of wine as we normally do mom Absolutely. All right. Excellent. So this week we are drinking Murphy Goods Cabernet Sauvignon. It smells and tastes like black cherry with just a hint of black licorice. It has notes of cassis, thyme, chocolate, and vanilla with just a wee bit of toast along the finish. It is the perfect wine for grilling and chilling. So that sounds fun. So let's do that, Mom. Let's do it. Oh, it sure does sound fun. Have you ever yeah. had Murphy before? Murphy Good? I, I never had. I had it. So I actually discovered Murphy Good, ironically enough, um, not to bring up the P word, but the, during the pandemic. Um, and so I um, I actually have I don't I don't think I've had this exact one before because I feel like the last time I had Murphy Good, it has a it had a cork and it has a different label to it unless they like redesigned it and stuff. Um, but I do know that it's very, very dark. It's a thick one for sure. Um, so this yes, is going to be dark. Yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. It's like purple, basically. It's like a purple mm-hmm. wine. So cheers to you, mom. Thanks so much for coming on. Cheers to you. Ooh, okay. I do get a little bit of black licorice in there. I do too, but not, I personally, I love black licorice. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not a total black licorice taste but just like a little hint of it in there yeah yeah i don't mind it it's definitely it's like a little bit in the back of the mouth right like that's mostly where i'm getting it it's not a whole lot in the front um Mm -hmm. in the front i'm getting a lot of those black cherries a lot of those uh, chocolate vanilla those like those kind of flavors too as well yeah i haven't oh wait i just i was just about to say i haven't tasted the chocolate yet and then as i swallowed Mm -hmm. i did right see i always notice too whenever you like like really focus in on those flavors like Mm -hmm. that's when it really pops out a lot more so yeah this is nice, so I like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I could. It's a very. It's a winter wine for sure, right? Because it's it's dark. It's like you know, it very much so like gives, um, you know, by the fire on a cold winter night, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I could definitely see that for for that kind of energy we're going for here um and yeah i mean it, like listen i i love i got my my love for for bold dark <laughs> wines from you um and so i very much so get that f- here um but it's fruitier than you would typically kind of expect those kind of wines as well so because I'm, I'm not it's not very dry so no it's definitely fruity and i think now what i'm um starting to sense is that the licorice is more in the smell i'm not even sure that i'm tasting mm. these because i'm smelling it a little bit yeah. And, oh, interesting. And tasting the berries. Yeah. No, you're right about that. Mm. But it's nice. That's a nice wine. Yeah. I think I like it as well. And it's definitely like, again, I remember Murphy Good being like a very dark wine. This is a little bit lighter than what I remember. A little bit okay. lighter. So, but maybe it's just been a while and I've, and my palate has, has progressed. So maybe I'll blame it on that. Um, But mom, we have, 19 pages of of a story to get through this week and so i want to get into that um because i know that you know this case and i want to hear everything you have to say about it hopefully you don't know every detail though absolutely i can't wait well i am going to tell you a story that you actually told me about for the very first time um you've been trying to get me to cover this case for weeks months um (laughs) a year and so we're doing it this week mom i've been saving it just for you in every single creepy and frustrating detail as well this week, I want to tell you about Mary Kellerman and the Tylenol killings.
On September 28, 1982, the Kellerman family was starting to deal with something every family has at one point, a sick kid. 12-year-old Mary Kellerman was starting to come down with what the whole family believed to be just a really bad cold. Mary was a really good kid, an only child in her parents' whole world. She loved making pottery and cooking with her mom. She was taking guitar lessons, too, did gymnastics, rode her pony, and loved to play the Atari with dad, too. So as the day went on and Mary started telling her parents that she had a sore throat and visibly had a running nose, her parents were prepping to take care of their little girl. Around 4 o'clock that afternoon, Mary's mom went to the jewel store to get a 50-count container of extra-strength Tylenol, the gelatin kind, because those were much easier for Mary to swallow. And so the next morning, when Mary said she wasn't feeling any better, her parents let her stay home from school for the day and gave her a Tylenol and told her to get back to sleep. That all happens around 6, the morning of September 29th, and not too long after that, Mary's parents are in the kitchen downstairs when they hear upstairs Mary get up, go to the bathroom, close the door, and then just a few moments later, they hear a really loud thud. They call out to Mary to make sure she's okay, but there was no answer. They call out again, Still no answer. So they go upstairs to check on Mary. They open the door and saw her lying on the ground, still in her pajamas, completely unconscious. Mary's parents call for help, and an ambulance comes to take her to the hospital, but it's not long after that that she is declared dead at just 12 years old, still in her pajamas from what was supposed to be just a sick day. I I actually, I cannot even imagine this poor family going through this. It's just so incredibly sad. You think your daughter has a cold? And before you know mm-hmm. it, she's gone. Yeah. And, and you know, because what I was thinking of when I was reading this case was the Julia Lynn Turner case. Um, we did that on episode 24 of this podcast, um, The Antifreeze Killer. Um, and it was, um, and I, I kind of got similar vibes, right? And because in all those cases, um, it was, you know, someone got really sick and then all of a sudden they weren't okay. And so that's kind of the similar vibe I'm getting here as well, because I'm imagining, right, that you, that if, you know, your your kids or anyone, right, is is not feeling well and then passes away, right, like you assume that that's, that the sickness or the illness is what, you know, contributed to that in some way, shape or form. Um, spoiler alert, not exactly what happened here um, for, for everyone listening at home. Um, but that's, 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 you know, I, I it, it wouldn't shock me if that was the initial instinct, right? Absolutely. That's what it, you would think that it was some, you know, illness that you missed and, and you thought mm-hmm. it was a cold and it wasn't, but do they have any... Right idea at this point they have i assume they have no idea how she died well they do eventually not not right at this moment mom you're right about that but at first i have to imagine again just um, you know mary's parents minds are just whizzing with possibilities i mean mary was getting a minor cold but was otherwise perfectly healthy and they had no idea what could have happened seemingly out of the blue but it's pretty obvious to investigators that mary's death was not a natural one by any means so naturally the parents are questioned about what happened to Mary, and they are cleared relatively quickly as having anything to do with Mary's death. And they also searched through the house to see if they could find anything suspicious, and nothing really stands out as remarkably out of the ordinary. So they traced through what Mary's parents tell investigators were her movements for the day, which weren't much. She told them about the afternoon of the 28th, how Mary wasn't feeling well. She went to the store, got some Tylenol, and gave her a pill the next morning when Mary still wasn't feeling very well. And so the time Tylenol seemed to stand out, right? And when they examine the Tylenol, they discover that it's not Tylenol at all. The capsules of what should have been acetaminophen was actually filled with cyanide poison. Absolutely horrible. And, you know, I am I would imagine that a lot of your listeners don't remember back as long as I do. <laughs> but, you know, back before this all happened, you went to the store and you bought whatever you bought and you just opened it up and it was open. There weren't Mm -hmm. aluminum covers on anything or whatever. Um, So obviously I know a little bit about this case because I lived through it, but at this particular time, at this time of the case, they don't know what happened. So where's the 
what's their guess on what happened? Yeah, well, simply, they just don't know, Mom. I mean, but what they do know is that the Kellermans were not the only family that this was happening to. Interestingly enough, that day, September 29th, 1982, all throughout the city of Chicago, there were more victims being transported to the hospital who suddenly dropped dead after feeling like they were coming down with a cold, just like Mary. Crime Over Wine is sponsored by BetterHelp. As someone who's used therapy for years, I know that finding a therapist can sometimes be a stress on its own, juggling your full-time job, your family, your friends, your podcast, and trying to find the right therapist on top of that can almost feel impossible. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp matches you with a therapist that works for you on your terms. It's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to one of 33,000 licensed professional therapists in as little as a few days. And because finding a new therapist is a lot like finding a new bottle of wine, if you don't jive with your therapist, you can easily switch to a new one at no additional cost. You can get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash crimeoverwine. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crime over wine for 10% off your first month. Join over 4 million people who decided to get help and get happy with BetterHelp. Fifteen minutes away from where the Kellermans were living on September 29th, 1982, the same day as Mary's death, 27-year-old Adam Janus was staying home from work because he wasn't feeling well. Similarly to Mary, Adam felt like he caught a cold. He had a sore throat, a runny nose, a bit of a headache, feeling a bit feverish. So that afternoon, he went to pick his kids up from preschool, and on his way home from work, he stopped at the drugstore to pick up some over-the-counter Tylenol. They came home home, they had lunch, and after lunch he said he was going to take his Tylenol and lie down for a nap. Well, just a few minutes later, Adam's kids were shocked when their dad came stumbling back into the kitchen clearly not well, and collapsed right there in front of them. Adam was rushed to the hospital and he died not long after that. It's just so terrible. It really is. And especially in front of his two young children, they must have been petrified. Oh, so scared. And and again, like, just to clarify here, too, right, like, this is all happening all at the same time, because, like, Mary and, and Adam, basically, right, like, they're in different hospitals, different parts of the city, but same day, same hours, um, that all this craziness is happening with Mary, the same thing is happening with Adam. Same location, right? They live in the same general area. Yeah, they live 15 minutes away from each other, all within, you know, the, the city limits of, of Chicago. Um, So, I mean, this, it's all, but, like, the dots haven't all, all fully connected yet um but they're about to um in like probably the most tragic way possible um and so let's get there because it is crazy this case is it just gets even crazier um you know when the rest of adam's family showed up at the hospital they weeped over his sudden passing and doctors told them that it was likely his heart that just gave out and killed him so really just distraught over this whole situation the family goes back to adam's house and there is the bottle of pills that adam had just taken a few hours earlier and at this point adam's 25 year old brother stanley and his wife terry had also started not to feel very well again they felt like they were coming down with a really bad cold and so look it had been a rough day for the family to say the least and their emotions had run their course so they decided they had no time for this cold they were not about to put up with that and they each take two more Tylenol pills to calm their fevers well just moments later the couple collapses too they rush to the hospital and are pronounced dead just hours after Adam had died my God, just horrible. Absolutely horrible. All in a day, right? I mean, like, you're, I mean, like, I can't imagine being Adam and Stanley's parents or, her, like, they I, they had kids and that kind of, like, it's just, it all happens right. all at the same right. time. Right. And again, our crime, crime sleuth minds would go to the Tylenol immediately, but at this point mm-hmm. in the world, Tylenol is Tylenol, you know? Well, yeah, very true. And again, like, you know, like hours before the doctor said his heart gave out, like it's an it was a natural thing. Like, unfortunately, like there was something in there that compounded it. 
little did they know that they were about to take the thing that compounded right. his heart attack, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's crazy, right? Like, they didn't think twice about that, obviously, like, at the moment. And why would you? Like, why would you even think that he could have possibly even been poisoned? Absolutely. The Tylenol in the, in the medicine cabinet. Right. Well, a woman named Helen Jensen, who was the neighborhood's only public health official, is asked to investigate the deaths of the Janus's. By this point, it was obvious that these were not natural deaths by any means. That ship had sailed, and investigators' interests are peaked, and they hadn't even connected the dots about the Janus's and the Kellermans and all that. So Helen goes to the Janus's home to conduct an investigation, which is when she sees that Tylenol bottle and a receipt that said it had been purchased the same day. The Tylenol bottle had six pills missing, two each for Adam, Stanley, and Terry, and Helen raises an eyebrow over this and sends the pills to the toxicologist to get them tested. And just like the pills Mary had taken, the Janus's Tylenol capsules had been replaced with cyanide. It's so incredibly sick. It's just sick to think that that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Need another sip. Yeah, sure do. Um, well, you know, this was not all either, Mom. Again, like, if if this is coming at you quick, it's about to come at you even quicker. Um, there were three other people that day in the city of Chicago who had gotten sick, taken the Tylenol, collapsed, and died all within hours. Horrible. They were 31-year-old Mary McFarland, 27-year-old Lynn Rainier, and 35-year-old Paula Prince. And investigators were able to trace the pills back to at least six different stores in the Chicago area. The FBI had gotten involved by this point, and they were really on edge about the possibility of Tylenol being sold in mass that was actually poison. Right. According to reporting by the Chicago Tribune, investigators were able to determine that the Tylenol bottles that Adam and the Kellermans had bought came from the same lot, the same batch of Tylenol pills, and that all of the bottles that killed people in the Chicago area were manufactured in Pennsylvania and Texas by a subsidiary of the drug manufacturing giant Johnson & Johnson. And so, again, this was an unreal situation, right? Like, who could have imagined this would have happened? But luckily, they were able to determine that the drugs were switched with cyanide after the manufacturing process, and they were likely replaced right on the shelves of the store. And they had no reason to believe that there was any danger to anyone outside of the Chicago metropolitan area. But still, better safe than sorry, right, in this type of situation. And so, investigators hold a press conference on September 30th, just a day after all of these deaths, warning the public of this Massive conspiracy involving a heavily used over-the-counter pain medication. And Johnson & Johnson ends up issuing a massive recall of their Tylenol, the largest recall in pharmaceutical history. Overall, as reported by the Boston Globe, the company had spent more than $150 million to recall more than 31 million containers and on a PR campaign to restore consumer confidence afterwards. So are they thinking at this point that it was a problem at the factory and that's why they did a massive recall like that or was it just to calm people's nerves so no so they they very much so believe um believe that someone had gone into their store into a store multiple stores and replaced the 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 um the tylenol with poison on the shelves they somehow i don't really know exactly how but they were able to say pretty definitively that they went out of the um out of the the you know factories out of the manufacturing process as Tylenol and everything was okay. And somehow they were able to figure out and say pretty confidently um, that when they went on the shelves, someone went into the store, replaced the, the pills, and that's that was the end of it. Okay, that's that's what I was thinking, but I just wanted to verify that. Mm-hmm. Well, Tylenol is certainly, you know, commonplace today, but back then it had really just risen to widespread use in hindsight. Tylenol was first sold over the counter in 1960, and by 1982, it accounted for 35% of the -the over-the-counter pain reliever market. And just weeks after the murders, it plummeted to less than 
8%. So this was like no easy feat in rolling back all of these pills or in convincing the public that they were okay to return to using them afterwards. Luckily, no one else had died as a result of those pills, at least no one whose death was definitively tied back to the Tylenol. But the obvious question here is who was behind all of this? Who was the sick person who poisoned seemingly random people for what appeared to be no reason at all? But just days after the murders happened, amidst the hysteria and the panic that had swept across the country, investigators get a pretty darn good suspect. Hello, Crime Over Wine listeners. I am Rachel. And I'm Heather. We are the hosts of Like Mother, Like Murder. We bring you the good, the badass, and the crime. Each week, we bring you stories from missing and murdered to survivors and women who empower you. And of course, some mom talk sprinkled in. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts at Like Mother, Like Murder. And give us a follow on social media so that we can say hi. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. All right, mom. So, how is your wine tasting? I am really getting a whole lot of flavors. The more, more I sip on this, I, I do. I think I'm getting a little bit more instead of just the smell of the licorice. I think I'm getting it, like you said, at the back of my tongue. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that, and I mean this in a good way. Almost like a sinus clearing mm-hmm. taste back mm-hmm. there, and I don't mm-hmm. mean it like a medicine taste. It's just yeah, yeah, it's nice. No, it's strong enough, and yeah. it, it is kind of like, um, like medicine-esque I, d- I know what you mean because it kind of it, it, it's a similar sensation i feel like as like like cold medicine um in that you get a lot of that back in yeah in the back of the in the back of the mouth because that's yeah. what i feel like cold medicine kind of is is you get like that bad feeling in the back bad taste in the back of your mouth this is a good taste to be clear right. um but like it's the it's the same kind of like feeling in terms of order right. of operations i suppose if you want to put yes. it that way i think it just it's a nice and and it's a nice smelling wine too i like mm-hmm. the smell of it yeah 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 i i typically again i enjoy my wines a little less fruity like i like my red wines to just like really just like like hit me kind of thing yeah. um and like this is like a little bit fruitier and a little bit like more subtle than i typically enjoy um but it's still very it's it's thick it's it's like a it's like a super dark red kind of thing um, and so I, so I, I do for, for, for that side of the things, I do enjoy it for that reason. Um, because it's yeah. for, if, you know, if I really, if I, it could also be, I'm not really in the mood for like a darker wine right now because like, you know, wines kind of go with your mood kind of thing. Yes. But I, but I, I do, um, if I could really, again, really see sitting in front of the fireplace kind of thing and just like sipping this thing and I could really, I could, I could, I could get into that. Absolutely. And, and I do think that when, when I was, you know, closer to your age, I did like <laughs> that. And I still like a strong red. I'm a strong mm-hmm. red drinking person, but I find that now I've, I enjoy blends a little more and a little, mm. not, not a sweet wine at all, but a little more berry. So it may be, yeah, sure. I'm really liking this one. Sure. Yeah. I feel like the, it's funny. Cause I feel like the older I get, the more I just really like it. Just like a real, like, like, you know, bold, dry red wine. And that's all I, that's, that's what I crave at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like, it's kind of funny how that, how that's happening, but um, you know, talking about like really dark things, we're in the midst of like a really dark case um, and it's about to get crazy. Um, we're about to have the twist of a lifetime. So let's talk about that mom. Cause we have a lot to discuss right now. Let's do that. So in early October of the same year as all of this happening, executives at John Johnson and Johnson receive a really cryptic letter in the mail. And mom, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to read it for us. Okay. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to the bank account number 
844-849-597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. Ugh, boy, that yeah. you know, even just reading that and knowing that someone wrote that gave me a, right. a disgusting feeling. Yeah, well, and so again, like a lot of things to digest here, right? But like the first part is, so he spent less than $50 to kill seven people, hypothetically speaking, um, right? If that's what like the direction we're going in here. Um, and again, you're like bragging that it took you less than 10 minutes to do this whole thing. Um, but then, but like also very detailed at the same time, right? So like, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later on. So definitely keep this in mind. But like the fact that like, like both potassium and sodium, like, okay, like how do you know what kind of cyanide was, were in these pills? unless you put it there um and then also too um like like it's it just like from like a police perspective right of like him saying like oh don't bother the authorities like spoiler alert here like they don't they don't take that advice like they don't like take well to this at all and they immediately involve the police so like that didn't really work out all that well but it is interesting that the the last line a couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do yeah i didn't quite understand what that meant i don't understand what that means either unless the only thing i can think of is that he has some sort of connections specifically with police and investigators somehow that like he seems to think that if you call police he can just make one call to his buddy and like this will just go away yeah that doesn't i don't quite i still don't quite understand that but and did you have any idea who this culprit is at this point well, investigators are able to figure out that the letter was sent by 36-year-old James Lewis. He's a father with a bit of a checkered past, and we're going to get more into that checkered past a little bit later on, so definitely hold that thought. But James was was born in Memphis, Tennessee as Theodore Wilson. He was the youngest of seven kids, but when he was just a year old, his father left the family and abandoned all of them. So, trying to make things work and give her kids the best life possible, James his mother moved to Joplin, Missouri, because it was cheaper, she could work and raise seven kids all on her own, at least it seemed that way. But not long after the move, James's mother decided she couldn't do this alone. There was no way that one woman could raise seven kids on the income that she was making. So she gave up. She abandoned the kids, too, oh. and James was adopted at just two years old, which is when his name officially changed to James Lewis. Well, again, a lot happened between then and 1980. But we are going to get there, I promise. And I know all of you are going to want to hear this, so just bear with me here. But fast forwarding to 1982, though, and investigators tie him back to this threatening and damning letter sent to Johnson & Johnson, and they ask him about it. At this point, James was living with his wife in New York City, not in Chicago. And as part of this interview, James tells police something really interesting and what feels like a pretty strong motive for being behind this whole thing. If you really is. James tells investigators that in 1974, his five-year-old daughter, Tony, had died after the sutures that were used to fix her congenital heart defect tore, and he never let that go. I mean, who can really blame him for holding a bit of a grudge? Maybe not to the extent that we're all assuming here, but still. But investigators believe that this letter was sent as an act of revenge against the company, and they believe that the poisonings were too. So I don't want to jump the gun, but they, they're they suspecting that this guy did it, or this is kind of what we know and now looking backwards? Because I'm a little confused so, about that part. So yeah, so they, so they find, so they were able to figure out that this dude sent the letter okay they go they go talk to him and then they, this all kind of unravels okay. in one way okay. shape or form okay. um and so so they're like well that sounds like a pretty darn good motive to me like if you blame this company for killing your kid then like maybe you try to mess with them a right. good bit you and know or try I, to tank their stocks what so. a sad life i mean again, yeah i don't care how horrible your life was you don't have right. the right to murder people but what a sad existence this mm-hmm. man seemingly yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And, and you know, I you know, I always think about this, right, whenever we talk about the, these kinds of, you know, backgrounds of people of like, it just seems as though, like, I don't know what kind of support he had 
it didn't sound like a whole lot and it's even less more as more we go down so like just keep this in mind but like it just seems as though like you know someone should have intervened at some point and like if someone had intervened at some point like who knows what would have happened um so i don't again i don't know i don't know what happened what how all that um, played out but it does it makes you wonder about like you know when you when you look into these people's backgrounds um, you know, and, and you find out all of these things, um, you know, if somebody had just, you know, made a phone call or put them put him somewhere, you know, to get the help that he needed, like, who knows what, what could have happened, or maybe nothing would have happened, maybe nothing would have changed. Right. But you don't know if he was born evil or was became evil right. because of his circumstances. Yeah, right. But point being, it's like, you could you can try, right? right? Like, you can try. And again, I don't know if anyone did. I don't know if anyone didn't. But it seems as though evidently, you know, the, the ending was poor it seems like he needed some help somewhere down even if you know and i get it if your daughter if if you're going to blame a hospital or a doctor or the company that manufactured the sutures that you know and then your your daughter died um that's that's horribly sad but yeah but somewhere in there there's something not right right and i can see you know again that happening right when it's like you need someone to blame and like you're you're you want you you are like like red with revenge and like you know you can like i can i can see that being the emotional reaction can't see again if if he really is behind all this can't see like murdering a bunch of people a bunch of innocent people had nothing to do with with your daughter's death as a result of that right yeah but james though denies ever having anything to do with the poisonings he reiterates that he wasn't even living in chicago at the time he was living in new york city and that there was no way that he could have been involved in the poisonings but he does admit to writing the letter however in a fit of rage and reaction to news about the murderers so police end up arresting um james and charging him with extortion for sending the letter and demanding money. But police are hell-bent on the idea that James was responsible for much more than just a letter. They believe that he himself replaced the Tylenol pills with poison to hurt the company as an act of revenge for his daughter's death. And frankly, James's background doesn't do him any favors either. So again, hold on tight, refill those glasses. Y'all are going to need it. This was far from James's first run in with the law. In 1966, when James was just 19, he went missing for about two days before he was found in a shallow pond, apparently trying to drown himself. He was brought back to his house, but his mental break did not end there. Once he was back at the house, James demanded that he be given access to his stepfather's gun cabinet, but his stepfather refused, and James responded with an outburst, attacked his stepfather, breaking several of his ribs in the process. Both of his parents ran from the house, while James threatened them with an axe. He was arrested on assault charges and stayed in the county jail for three weeks before he attempted to take his own life again by taking 36 aspirin all at once. He was released from jail and committed to a state psychiatric institution as a result. And in 1978, James was actually charged with murder. James's daughter had developed an attachment to an elderly client of his while James worked as a tax accountant. And then suddenly the client's dismembered body was found stuffed into a plastic bag and hung from the ceiling in the man's attic. James was charged with the man's death after he forged a check in Raymond's name for $5,000. But the charges ended up being dropped over scrutiny from a procedural error. James was not read his Miranda rights when he was arrested, which was and still is required for officers to do during each and every arrest they make. You know, I always, I, I hate when I hear about something like this where something as simple as the Miranda rights is going to get. And I understand why those were put into place to protect people in the first place. But when they're then used to free someone who, right? I mean, I don't know, because I don't know all the facts in this, but let's just say he is guilty of this. Freeing someone who's committed a murder it just is right come on there's got to be a different yeah. way to do this sure does yeah and and at the very least like guilty of fraud right if he's caught you know you know forging the check which Absolutely. again seems to me like a pretty guilty person of murder right like you don't you know right. someone just dies and then you just happen to get their checkbook and obviously not a stable individual given his right. past anyways oh my god right yeah and again like just to reiterate here like my understanding is that like the daughter like was just really interested in this man like for 
for whatever reason, like just became very friendly with right. him. Um, and doesn't mean he should die. <laughs> right, right. Well, but based on what I read, that's why he targeted this dude. Um, which is just, I mean, like unwell, right? And like, but like, point being, right? Like, is that frankly, if somebody is capable of all of these things, right? Like, you're certainly capable of of doing what he has assumed to have done to all these people, Absolutely. and possibly even more more of them if they didn't, you know, if if they didn't catch it in time. Exactly. So yeah, so I mean, it's just it's it's crazy. So yeah, and and again too, like and I, I kind of what you're saying, mom, right? Like like I understand the Miranda rights. I I, I get it, it, it sh- that that should be a thing. A hundred thousand percent. And it and it just kind of reminds me, right, that like the people who you know who are investigating these types of situ- situations, who are prosecuting these types of situations are human beings right and like you know make mistakes and unfortunately right like like if i make a mistake in my job like i'll be okay like i'll be there monday but like you make a mistake in your job and you're and you're affecting lots of people's right. lives right. yeah and it's just really it's unfortunate oh, just that's infuriating though. the reality yep. yeah it is infuriating well you know that was not all either mom um in 1981 james was under investigation for mail fraud in kansas city because apparently he just wasn't hitting enough crimes on his bingo board I this guy in his hand and everything right exactly um it was all in relation to a credit card scam there isn't a ton of details out there about what exactly james was under investigation for allegedly doing but he did move to chicago as the investigation intensified as this apparent way to get away from that life or that investigation he lived there for about nine months before moving to new york with his wife in september right before the murders happened in chicago in 1982 so we're right back we did the whole circle for james's life and now we're right back at the beginning so he was in chicago maybe not at the exact time of the murders but certainly in time to maybe right. stick something on a back shelf right exactly yeah no very good point right yeah and and he openly admits that he lived in chicago like he wasn't hiding that much over his life but his point was that he like on the day that it happened he wasn't there oh. um yeah right but and there was even so so the so police listen to this too so police um like interviewed his friends um and family and, and everyone around him and there was this one friend who was like most vocally um you know saying that he that james probably had something to do with this and apparently as this friend tells police um the that james had told the friend that he like very intentionally like walked and openly admitted walked in front of security cameras in new york city um as a way to like validate his alibi um that he wasn't in that he wasn't living in chicago that he was actually living in new york city at the time um, and that is the way that he is proving that he had nothing to do with but this. But I get it if if the murders were that someone was stabbed in Chicago mm-hmm. on Saturday and you can prove right. you were in New York on Friday and Saturday, okay, you weren't there. But when it's something mm-hmm. like this, the timeline is a little bit extended, I would imagine. Right. And just right. so you know, I did just report. I'm just saying. Oh, good. Well, I, you, I'm, I know you needed it for sure because we have a lot to. There's a lot going on here, right? But, but also, and playing devil's advocate here, right? Like a little bit in favor of James, okay. hypothetically speaking, right here, like that, because kind of what you, what you just alluded to, because that's kind of how I picture this whole thing happening. If he did indeed do it, was like just sticking it in the back of a shelf somewhere right. and just like you know, like once it cycles through, it cycles through. Um, but like also, if if he really truly wasn't living in in Chicago at the time, he was living in New York City, like. How do you time that out so that like all the people, all your victims all buy it on the same day, take it on the same day? Yeah, because like like if you were in Chicago at the time, which like, frankly, who's to say that he didn't, you know, like, you know, go to the go to Chicago, do this like right before close and like get the first bus to New York City, um, to be fair. But point being is that like, how do you like, how do you like if you were in Chicago, I could see how you planned it out. So that way you put it all in the front row, all these people who are buying who are who bought this drugs or bought these drugs, um, got it on the first like got it on that day on the same day. Like that would make sense to me. But like, Mm -hmm. how do you plan that out? So that way it would cycle through and then everyone buys it and takes it on the same day but i think about when i buy tylenol i don't necessarily sometimes you buy it because you need it that day sometimes it's like oh i've only got two left in my little pill bottle so i'm gonna buy Mm -hmm. my so you don't even really know when people are going to take them and three three of the people the the three family members took it from the same right pill I, i don't know it's just 
I don't know. Yeah. No, I see. I see what you're saying, though, for sure. And like, again, listen, I'm not like I firmly believe that he did this. But although the the little girl, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name. I should remember the 12 year old little Mm -hmm. girl, Mary. Thank you. Her parents did buy it the day she took it. And the other gentleman did take it the day he. So you're right. How do you plan that out that they're going to take buy it? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and I don't know. I, I vaguely kind of remember that the other three had also bought it the same day as well. Um. So uh, sure. And like, to be fair, right. Like, like if I like if I'm out of of Tylenol, right, like I'm probably not going to go buy it unless That's I need, you need it. it. You yeah. know? Yeah. I'm, cause I'm a little like, crazy oh, like that. Right. I like to have one. Sure. 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 <laughs> well, maybe. Right. Like I like, again, actually, I know I'm out of it right now, frankly. And so like, but I haven't bought it because it's not in my mind because I don't have a headache or don't have a whatever right. or right now um so like that that is probably like i feel like that's how most people would operate okay. on that on that front i that's that that's that's just like obviously i there's no data to back that up that's just like my instinct and how i roll about that right. um but i could also but but also because then because then you have it you don't you're not going to take a whole pill in a, in a week or a whole bottle in a week right. so then you have it for a long time oh, so i don't know so cool I'm just going for like like human behavior here. I feel like that makes sense, but but so anyway, so so point being is, I feel like that's like a fairly strong piece of evidence in his favor um, to say, or evidence anecdote in his favor, because um, because again, how do you plan that out unless you're there to like make it happen, right? Right. So, well, James, you know, was starting to look more and more like their guy, but they didn't have anything tying him directly to the murders. Just a lot of very circumstantial evidence besides that letter, which feels pretty admission-y to me, but beside the point. Police said for years that they believed that they built a very chargeable case, but the district attorney said there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with murder and to get a conviction, which I can kind of see. James is convicted for extortion the next year and is sentenced to 12 years in federal prison, and he was released in 1995. By 2004, James was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and had once again gotten into deep trouble with the law. He was accused of aggravated rape and drugging a person with intent to stupefy or overpower for sexual intercourse. He was charged with those two counts plus four other ones and was held without bail until 2007 when the victim in his, in this case decided not to move forward um, on prosecution for reasons that are unknown to me right now. So the charges were dropped. So... My first thought was, you know, generally when I think of someone who robs a bank, they're a bank robber. When I think of right. someone who steals car, they're right. This guy dipped his hit in the whole board. Goes right. into everything, right? Like, but also he's like the what? What's the expression for the mob guy? The Teflon Don. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, keep skating on all this stuff. I don't understand I know. that. Yeah, it really it feels like the freaking Mur- Murphy's exactly. Law of cases, right? Like, oh, yeah, God. it's like you you can't get anything to stick. I mean, at least they got him on the the letter, but like that was twelve years for extortion. Like that's hardly if, justice. If he's guilty of all all the things that we've read about so far, he should never see right. the light of day. I mean, ten times over. Yeah. yeah, listen, I simply cannot imagine how you read that letter and say yes he did this and is guilty of writing this letter and and this illegal thing but not saying oh he's guilty of the he's, murders, he's, uh, of the right. murders. yeah because that is is an admission right there in, in black and right white. and i get it in in this you know in 2023 2024 time frame we're video cameras are everywhere the mm-hmm. cctv and ring doorbells right. and everything and back in 1980 to back in the, the 1990s, the video cameras weren't as big. So I get that they yeah. can't use that. But this seems like more than circumstantial evidence that yeah. this guy had his hand in it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I don't know what else like the the prosecutor knows, right? Like I have to imagine that they have something else there to like make them think that like it could look, you know, go in the other favor for them. Mm-hmm. But but also, too, like, you don't want, like, and we talk about this all the time on Crime Rewind, right? Like, we don't want a situation right where where they go to where they go to trial and they don't have all the evidence. Like, they don't have a freaking ironclad case against this dude and he gets off and then, and, and then it's over, right? Like, you don't have, you have any luck of doing that. Yeah, I kind of get the hesitation, but 
40 years. That's a long yeah. time, right? To just like wait, yes. you know, to see if the new evidence comes. Right. But again, I don't know what, what all they have. I don't know what they know beyond what, what has been publicized. Mm. Um, but, you know, that same year, as speculation continued about James Lewis being the Tylenol killer and police continuing to push that publicly, James created a website to make the case for his innocence. It's no longer up today, but it lays out why he wasn't and couldn't have been the Tylenol killer. But police believe that the website was only created to taunt police and who still hadn't gathered enough evidence to prove his guilt once and for all. He had even started to refer to himself as the Tylenol Man, and the people who lived in his apartment building in Cambridge even told reporters that he referred to himself that way privately too. So, Mom, I'm ho- there's like this really wild line in this website. I'm hoping you're going to be able to read it for us. Okay. In a quarter of a century, I have not been able to escape the Tylenol Man label. A Google search of James plus Lewis plus Tylenol yields over 240,000 documents, and the list is growing. After 25 years of cringing and fear, I am tired of hiding in silence. I will not run and hide anymore. I will now face this controversy head on. Yikes. What the heck does mm-hmm. that mean? Yeah, a little cryptic, right? Yeah. I mean, and also you uh, can't escape the Tylenol Man label. Well, maybe because you're right. calling yourself the Tylenol Man. Right. Yeah, you are calling yourself that. <laughs> yeah, that is fair. But also, too, I mean, again, like devil's advocate here, right? Like if he's if he's innocent, like I could see how that is just absolutely maddening, right? Where it's just like if you know you didn't do anything wrong, and yet people are still like like slamming you into into yeah. saying that it, that you did. I, I could see how that could end up being just exhausting. I don't know. If if people were accusing me of some horrific, deplorable crime like this one, I would do mm-hmm. my I would do my best to separate myself from any of those monikers. Right. Yeah. Don't call yourself Tylenol man. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And and like and again too, like frankly, like like step up and like if you really don't like and think you did it, like step up and like prove that you didn't you know what right. i mean because like right now there's so much air of mystery going on and like everything like it seems as though like most of the puzzle is kind of you know is constructed to point toward you right and like really just there's like a couple pieces missing and like maybe those pieces don't exist because like you because if you if you really didn't do it but like it's it seems as though everything's pointing in your direction so like if you really truly like know you didn't do anything wrong prove it right and don't say i'm gonna face the controversy head on right. like what what right. does that mean yeah right that sounds like every like mass shooters like last words kind of thing yeah i totally agree well again james was never charged with the murders that were related to the pills but that wasn't for lack of police persisting on it even 25 years later and it appeared as though they finally were about to catch him slipping Get ready for that big test with Study.com. Study.com offers learning materials and test prep, even LSAT study prep guides for all of my legal nerds listening. Unfortunately, there aren't any wine study guides, and believe me, I did check. Listeners can get 30% off their first three months of any subscription level using the promo code CRIMEOVERWINE. Again, that's promo code CRIMEOVERWINE, no spaces, for 30% off your first three months at Study.com. Learn faster, stay motivated, study smarter with our sponsor, Study.com. Between 2007 and 2008, federal agents had conducted an undercover operation on James. They recorded a ton of undercover conversations with him, asking him about the letter and the poisonings. And as part of those conversations, James said that it took him about three days to write the letter, which is really interesting to them. And here's why. At this point, they were able to figure out that the letter had been sent on October 1st, 1982. So an easy calculation again, not great at math, but like I can do this math, would allow anyone to figure out that three days before October 1st was September 29th, the day of the murders and the day before investigators had said a word about them publicly. Mm -hmm. So how did he know to even start composing the letter if he didn't know this was going to happen? Right. Unless you did know. Right. Right. 
Well, investigators pressed him on it in a follow-up interview about his comments, and after a brief pause, he said that he must have had a faulty memory. And he brushed it off. So, suspicious, a little odd, but certainly not necessarily fully incriminating. So, still, James is not arrested with anything. But he does start saying some really wild stuff, Mom. He agrees to help investigators find the real killer across multiple different interviews. And as part of that help, he provides really specific details on how someone could have replaced the acetaminophen with cyanide without customers discovering that the drugs had been tampered with, including sketches. And, you know, the sketches are just absolutely, like, beyond belief. Go look it up. We're going to link to it on our website. Oh, my God. Like, seriously? How how do you even, like, begin to say things like, oh, I'm going right. to help you. I, I'll show you how this could have happened. Right. Who would ever imagine how this could have happened unless you were the unless one who made it? It happened. Yeah, certainly not a freaking tax accountant, right? right? Like you're like you're like it's not like if you were like some pharmacist, like sure, okay, I would believe you, but that's that's not you, James. Like that's not who right. you are. Right. So it's just weird that like it's weird. And again, like you would think that if you really truly had nothing to do with this, you would want to be far the hell away from it as possible. Right. And so I just don't imagine why you'd want to be like, oh yeah, like I'll help you. Right, because you're I'll show you how to do it, and you did it. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, the FBI also found a book on poisoning in a search of James's apartment and found fingerprints on the pages related to cyanide. But still, somehow, it wasn't enough to convince the DA to bring charges, so James walked free. Police had apparently interviewed James several times over the next few years, as recently as 2022. And while murders directly related to the Tylenol killings were non-existent, investigators believe a number of copycats made their marks. There were three deaths from suspected poisonings in 1986, 23-year-old Diane Ellsroth in Yonkers, New York, and Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel in Washington State. In the case of Susan and Bruce, however, Bruce's wife, Stella, was arrested and convicted for murder. I'll let all of your imaginations run wild about how that happened. There were apparently many more murders over the next decade over the Tylenol killings, but they eventually did end up dying down. All the way up until July of 2023, just a few months ago from when we're recording this episode, James Lewis was found dead at 76 at his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His wife was out of town at the time and asked his friend to go check on him, and there he was, along with any hope as far as investigators were concerned of bringing charges for the Tylenol killings. In several interviews with reporters, investigators and prosecutors made it incredibly clear that they believe James Lewis was the Tylenol killer all the way up until his death. Retired FBI Special Agent Roy Lane told the Chicago Tribune, quote, James Lewis's death ends a lifetime of cruelty to others and a compulsive need for revenge. His death puts the pursuit of justice to an end. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeremy Margulis told the Chicago Tribune, quote, I was saddened to learn of James Lewis's death, not because he's dead, but because he didn't die in prison. Well, I I appreciate and agree with her sentiment, but then I also think, then why didn't you guys do something else to get this guy convicted? And I also have to throw out there... I cannot believe this man was married. That's fair. Yeah. And for a long time, by the way, for a very, very long time. Because again, remember, he he moved from Chicago to New York. So like with, with his wife. So they were married for a long time. <laughs> but yeah, no, I totally agree. And again, I kind of get that because I certainly like, like, listen, I don't like... I believe in, you know, in, you know, if you commit a murder, you belong in, you don't belong in jail for the rest of your life. Um, And so I, you know, I'm not one to like wish death on anybody by any means shape or form um but you know certainly if you're gonna die in any way i assuming that this dude actually did this thing i want you to have died behind bars and that's that's where i want your final moments to exist agreed well mom there is one more layer in case there aren't enough layers in in this case to be unfolded um to all of this you know that i have to tell you about it's actually mom a second person who was largely considered a suspect in the murders at times just as much as James Lewis was. Crime Over Wine is proud to support Emancipate 
Unlike episodes of Crime Over Wine, veterinary care shouldn't be a mystery, which is why Emancipet is making vet care affordable and accessible to everyone. Emancipet is a nonprofit organization that operates an ever-expanding network of low-cost veterinary clinics in neighborhoods across the country, offering discounted and free vaccines, flea and tick treatments, spay and neuter surgeries, and much more. Learn more and support Emancipet's mission at emancipet.org. The suspect's name was Roger Arnold, and here's how he had gotten into the mix. A bar owner had actually reported Roger to police after Roger apparently told the bar owner that he had bought a large amount of cyanide about six months before the poisoning and had been discussing killing lots of people with a white powder as he was becoming more and more erratic after his marriage had just ended. When police searched Roger's house, they found five guns, books on explosives and poisonings, including a book that describes how to make potassium cyanide, Mm. vials, beakers, test tubes, and a white granulated powder, which police said was not cyanide and no cyanide was found at the house, to be clear. And if that wasn't eyebrow-raising enough, listen to this. Roger worked with one of the Tylenol-killing victim's father. Roger had apparently worked with Mary Rainier's father at a warehouse, and Roger's wife had been treated at a hospital right across the street from the store where Mary had bought the Tylenol that later killed her. After this bar owner caused him so much trouble, Roger was pissed. In 1983, he was charged with shooting and killing a man named John Stanisha, a father of three who Roger had mistaken for the bar owner. He was convicted the following year and served 15 years of a 30-year sentence for second-degree murder. He died in June of 2008, having never been charged with the Tylenol killer, to be clear. But in June of 2010, police had Roger's body exhumed to extract DNA from his femur bone to test it against DNA found on the Tylenol containers, and it was not a match. All at the same time, police also tested James's DNA against the sample on the bottle and requested DNA from Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. (laughs) But those samples were not matches either. So obviously I know who Ted Kaczynski is, but I don't remember when the Unabomber struck. Was this before he was the Unabomber? I'm just curious. But I also think that this this gentleman also sounds like a, a, a crazy human being. Oh, yeah. But the evidence to me doesn't follow him as closely as it does James. No, and like again, that was like a very obviously yeah. a very bridge version of like of Roger's involvement yeah. in this whole yeah. thing. But like also too, I mean, like if the shoe fits kind of thing. Like frankly, like I, like there are some parts of it that I'm like that sounds yeah. better than James in some cases. You know what I mean? But why would he poison random people yeah. rather than? The people he, I mean, this seems like he was targeting the people he hated. So why? Right. Yeah. Yeah, true. And like, so like, yeah, again, like the the motive is not there for sure, at least from what I've seen. Um, But, but to be fair though, right. Like if he has this personal relationship with a, with a victim in some way, even if it's just the victim's father, like, okay, sure. Like that, like that seems to like, you know, like connect the dots that way, but not entirely. Like it seems as though James had a better motive. Um, but, but Roger definitely had a stronger connection to these people for sure. At least one of them. Um, but, uh, but then I, but also too, and like maybe, maybe the DNA is just like a red herring in this whole thing, but also the fact that like none of their DNA matched. Yeah. That's kind of wild to me, but also it could have been, any anything any kind of dna right and i'm sorry maybe i missed this part when were they testing the dna like how far advanced was dna testing at the point oh this was 2010 when they were testing the dna yeah so it was pretty advanced at this point yeah maybe not as advanced as 2023 but it was advanced enough Okay. Um, You know, but police, though, didn't seem to be as convinced of Roger's guilt as they were of James's. But interestingly, some family members of some of the victims didn't seem to be as convinced of James being the true Tylenol killer as police Hmm. were. Michelle Rosen, Mary Rainier's daughter, told the Chicago Tribune in 2022, quote, Lewis was convicted of his opportunistic act and spent 12 years in prison for it. 
I am appalled that they still circle back to him as the possible murderer. This inhibits the investigation and influences the public into believing a false narrative. Also, I wonder what her thoughts were further than just this. Like, why didn't she think he was the guy that's. Yeah, and well, well, and let's also keep in mind. So, th- so this is um, Mary Rainier's daughter, who is the one who, um, who Rogers knew her dad, and so maybe Michelle is like liking Roger a little bit more because oh. she because of that connection. Okay, okay, that would make sense. Yes, to me. that would make sense to me too. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, but but point being, because that that when I read that, I thought that was kind of wild, yeah. right? Because most of the time, it's um, it's you know, it's the victim's family being so convinced and hell bent that this person was guilty, and police being a little bit more hesitant. And so the fact that these roles are reversed is kind of wild to me. Um, because, because kind of, like that was my initial thought. It was like, okay, well, if 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 it's not James, and who would, then who is it? Right. You know what I mean? And like, you the know, other guy, right? Okay. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, that that makes. I don't. I don't know what she thinks, but that makes a logical amount of sense to me. Okay. Great. So I don't know. I don't know. But but again, but again, it's 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 just crazy to me that like all the evidence seems to point to James, and yet the family members aren't even convinced. Who seems to be who, and they seem to be the people who who would be most likely to make and you know a you know a gut instinct kind of call yeah um, but even they, if that gut instinct isn't right what did the other families i mm. wonder you know yeah and was, i didn't see that this is one family member yeah and of, the one who had a relationship with the other guy so, right okay. right yeah right. right exactly you know the murders though kind of what we were talking about before mom you know did change the pharmaceutical industry for good and for the better the tragedies changed the way that products are packaged and sold everywhere almost immediately after the murders johnson and johnson implemented tamper-proof packaging including foil seals and tamper-resistant wrapping so if a product had been tampered with the consumer would know for sure in 1983 those changes became an industry standard and it became a federal law that companies of all kinds, from drugs to food, would have to follow this anti-product tampering law titled the Tylenol Bill. Yes, and and I again, similar to what we were discussing with the Miranda Law, I know that these laws were put into place for incredibly good reasons. However, when you're trying to open, you know, your <laughs> container of orange right. juice and it's spilling all over you, yeah. you have right, this situation right, right. to thank for it. Yeah, listen, I strongly believe that there are some companies and some products that take it a little bit too far. Or Liam, but or do they? Right? I mean yeah. until sure. until they don't. And then someone's so like, yeah, I yeah, that's stop fair. complaining about it. Sure. Yeah. But again, so like, you know, the, there's your fun fact for the week, right? Like this is why <laughs> that this all exists, is because of of going back to all this. Um, but I mean, and and it's a shame, I guess, that like that this had to happen for that to happen. Yes. But also thinking back to I mean, again, you know, I was not alive in nineteen eighty two, but like I think back to like like thinking back to like what it was like in nineteen eighty two, right? Like it's like who would have even freaking imagined that this would have happened, right? right? And you never would have and until this came to light, you never thought mm-hmm. about just opening your container of whatever and, and trusting right. it. You you had trust in everything you consumed or mm-hmm. rubbed on your body or whatever. You just right. you had complete faith that it was it was safe. Yeah. Yeah. And and like credit, because a lot of times, right, like like the companies and like that are intimately involved in the situation on the back end of it, like kind of do some weird stuff that like, you know, you're not like you like it's like you're kind of weirded out by by kind of their reaction to this whole yeah. thing. But credit to these guys. Right. Because they took like immediate swift action um, to like, you know, to make sure this didn't happen again to the point where like the the I think I read in a couple of different articles when I was doing research for this case that like the PR response from on behalf of johnson and johnson to this whole thing was is like still to this day like looked at as like the model of like crisis pr and like what that should right. end up being right and, so and you gotta in a way no in, in a big way feel bad for johnson and johnson it wasn't mm-hmm. their fault that some psychopath decided Did nothing to wrong her. yeah yeah so that's and what they didn't do anything wrong and yet here they were having to you know recall and and defend their 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 company brand and the whole bit Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a yeah. Well, because I'm because I'm positive, right? Like the initial reaction to this all happening oh. had to have been that this company fucked up. Some Absolutely. Way, right? First, yeah. it, from what I can remember, and you know, I wasn't that young, but still naive enough to not really care. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was a junior in high school. 
So, but the word on the street was, oh my God, don't use Tylenol. Tylenol will, kill you. Mm-hmm. you know, it was a horrible, horrible thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, they clearly recovered very, very nicely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't, I don't feel that bad for them no, <laughs> in, only, in the long run. Only in that it wasn't their fault. That's the way yeah, I Sure, 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 yeah. sure. Yeah. No, very good point. Well, on that note, um, that is all that we have for you this no, week. Can't we do another so... one? <laughs> Well, okay, let's do, let's do part two then yes. now, right? I do, I would, I want to do a whole episode on Roger because I think that's like so fascinating, that whole situation because we really did like a whole abridged thing on yeah. it, but different episode. Um, But mom, thank you so much for coming on. It was fantastic to have you on. Liam, thank you so much for having me. You know, I miss you so, so much. So spending this time, even though it was via, I guess your, your podcast people don't know this, but via Zoom because we're looking at right. each other and- I miss right. you and I love you and I hope we don't have to wait another 50 episodes before I get to Yeah, right, right. Well, I well this episode um is coming out right that right after the new year um and so we'll have spent lots and lots of time Yay. together over the holidays. Um so that won't last for much longer. <laughs> um but again, thank you so much for coming on, mom, and thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories for yourself too. And if you were just loving this podcast and you're just wondering how you can tell anyone and everyone about it, the best way to help others discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week, here's a quick sneak peek. Hello, everybody. It's Liam. And I'm Grayson Gordon. Next week, I'm joining the Crime Vineyard to help Liam tell you all about a missing woman and a missing car from Connecticut that has left a family brokenhearted for close to 40 years. What really happened to Mary Badaraka? You may need two bottles for this one, folks, but we'll tell you all about that next Wine Wednesday on the next episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.